Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. This interview was recorded for KPFA's Arts Waves program in March of 2016 as Swimmers by Rachel Bonds was playing at Marin Theatre Company. My guest is Rachel Bonds. Rachel Bonds has written several plays, born in Tennessee, went to Brown. This particular play, is this a world premiere? Has it played before? It has not. It has not. First production ever of this play. According to what I read, Jason Minadakis, the artistic director of Marin Theatre Company, was given the play, read it, and said, I have to produce it. How did he get swimmers and... Was it going to be produced? What's the story behind that? He was the first person to actually offer a production. So he called me over Thanksgiving of 2014 and said, I've read this play. We must do it. And I hesitated for a little while. First, because it's a big play. There's 11 cast members. I had a director in mind and a set designer in mind, and I wanted to be sure that I could bring my director and set designer with me, as well as a few actors from New York. So I didn't want to just immediately say, yes, you can have the play. We needed to negotiate a few terms first, but they have been very, very open and willing to give me everything that I asked for, which does not always happen. It's actually been a really lovely process. So we went back and forth about it for a couple months, and then I said, you can do the play. This play was not written on any kind of commission, or no, was it? It was not. Uh, I wrote it just in my living room. <laughs> the first draft in 2011. So it's been a few years and has gone through various development stages. I had a reading at the Roundabout in New York. I did a workshop at New York Stage and Film. So I've had a few development opportunities, but no production offers until now. Let's go back a little bit before we actually talk about the play itself. Now, you were born in Tennessee, wound up going to Brown, and I understand your mom read a lot and encouraged you to be a writer. <laughs> Most people don't encourage their kids to be writers that way. Were you writing a lot at the time? Yes. Both my parents actually were very encouraging to me, but especially my mom because she's a voracious reader and encouraged me to be. My dad was as well, though. He was a classicist, so a lot of what he was reading were people who were long dead, and my mom and I both read a lot more contemporary authors. She made me feel like a writer was a cool thing to be. I fought her on it for a while. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted something more glamorous, what I considered more glamorous, but eventually I came around to see her point of view. You went to Brown and you were theater major at the time, and you were also acting, I guess. Yes, I was predominantly an actor, and I was writing a lot of prose, actually, the creative writing program, fiction writing, nonfiction writing. I was doing a lot of creative nonfiction. So I was writing a lot of prose, but then also acting, and at some point, my interest in writing and my interest in acting sort of combined into an interest in playwriting. Had you taken classes in playwriting? 
I took my freshman year, I took an intro to playwriting class, and then I, I took one almost every semester or every year after that. Jordan Harrison was my teacher because he was getting his master's degree at Brown at the time. Kiara Hudes was there getting her master's degree. So there were a lot of uh, wonderful playwrights around who were certainly influencing what we read. But my first attempts at writing a play were oh, oh, terrible. Largely monologues, just long, lengthy monologues, a lot of poetic language that was just poetic for the sake of being poetic and had no <laughs> dramatic tension or sense of action. And those things I learned later. When you're writing prose, of course, you're dealing with voice, you're dealing with all of that. At a certain point, I guess you have to sort of put the prose ideas together with the playwriting idea. Did it suddenly click or was it just a hard process to suddenly go, oh, this is better? I think it was a hard process. I spent a lot of time thinking, I'll never write a play. I'm terrible at this. I don't know why I'm trying to do it. This is going so badly. It felt like pulling teeth. It felt very arduous, whereas writing prose felt very easy and sort of natural. But what I think I learned from prose was was a sense of imagery and voice, tone, and those things eventually, because I kept at it, allowed me to become a better playwright. I learned to write dialogue. Rachel Bonds, was your first play produced there at Brown? First play I ever had produced professionally was Ensemble Studio Theater. It was a one-act play in their marathon of short plays called Anniversary, and has since gone to be a radio play. We did it on something called Playing on Air, which does short plays on the radio. That was my first professional production, and then my second was actually directed by my now husband and produced by the two of us. Uh, it was called Michael and Edie. We did that in New York. And he was the one who basically said, give up acting. Not that clearly, but he said, acting is where I think you're going to shrink and writing is where you will expand. Why did he think that acting would make you shrink? I never enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed writing. I felt that I had to fit myself into a box. I had to be a certain type. I had to fit into a certain role. Casting is such a tricky, hard thing, and I... I didn't want to be so out of control. I think so much of acting, you're you're not in control of things, and I really like to be in control. So writing allowed me to do that. I got to create the world. I got to create the characters. It was just much more satisfying for me. I interview mostly authors. You know, I know the process. Write a first book, send it out to a billion agents, or you get someone to read it, and they send it to their agent, and occasionally, if you're lucky, you send it to a publisher slush file and they find you an agent. But with playwriting, there aren't publishers in the same way. What is the process of getting a first play produced? My first, that production of Anniversary came about because I took a class with a director named Lindsay Furman, who's since become a very good friend of mine, but she liked my writing she is the literary manager at Ensemble Studio Theater, so we made a connection there, and she passed my play on to them to read for the marathon. So it was because I took that class and that personal connection and because I worked to establish that relationship. I think that happens a lot. People, I find, want to help you. If they're a little bit further on in their careers than you are, they tend to want to help you. So that was how that happened. And then the second production, my husband and I produced by ourselves, so it was self-produced. We did all the work. 
I was in this uh, playwrights group at a theater called Ars Nova in New York, and I said to them, look, I would love to have an agent. Can you guys help me with that? And they sent my work out to a few people and got me my current agent. And then from then on, you begin to live on commissions. You have three commissions going on, Studio Theater, Manhattan Theater Club, and Atlantic Theater Club. So those have all been turned in, so they're actually officially <laughs> off my desk. But now I'm working on McCarter. I had one for the Arden in Philadelphia, which I also finished. Uh, South Coast Rep I just turned in. We're going to do a reading of that in the Pacific Playwrights Festival in April. The only current commissions are McCarter, and I believe I have one with the Geffen that's going to start soon. I have not officially signed the contract, but that will be happening. When you get the commission, do they just kind of go, oh, Rachel Bonds, we're giving you a commission without any idea of what the play is going to be? Yes. Unless you get a Sloan commission, which has to be a play about science, which MTC gives out as well as Ensemble Studio Theater, you can write anything you want. I think it behooves a writer to know the audience that they might potentially be writing for and the kinds of things that theater produces. So I think it's smart to have a sense of their taste. Do you write one play at a time and get that one up and running until you get to the next one? I usually have a few at various stages of development, so I'll never be writing a first draft of two things at once. I can be writing a first draft of something and doing revisions on a third draft of something else, or I can be doing a workshop of one play and starting to write a new play, but never, no two things can be at the same place developmentally. That makes my brain explode. I would think it makes your brain explode to be going from one play to another. It does, but sometimes it's such a relief. The problems of one play are not the problems of the other. So when you get very bogged down in the issues of one play, it's kind of a relief to move to the problems of another play. When you're sitting down and you're going, okay, you've got your computer screen in front of you, what is the first thing you're thinking about? Are you thinking about themes? Are you thinking about place? What are you thinking about? Usually the first thing that will spark a play for me is an image, something I've seen, like a painting, something like that. That is a starting place for me. I almost never think about themes or plot. That comes later for me. I start with character. I start with an image or a relationship. Those are the things that sort of spur a new play for me. What about swimmers? How did that start? I was doing a writer's retreat in Florida, which was also a workshop with Annie Baker and eight other playwrights, eight to 10 other playwrights were in our group. We had various writing exercises and one of them created one of the scenes of this play. It was slightly different in that version, but I got very attached. It was really a monologue that came from that little short play and I got very attached to it and I... When I went home after that retreat, I started to build the rest of the play around that scene, and it became Swimmers. It's about people in an office, and some very ugly things are happening out in the <laughs> real world that's kind of infecting what's going on in the office, is that correct? Sure. I wouldn't necessarily say ugly, but eerie. There's some threats of the end of the world, and and 
coyote sightings in this place where there shouldn't be coyote sightings. So it just feels a little bit like everything in the world is a little topsy-turvy. And then things that are going on in the characters' lives are also a little topsy-turvy. People grieving, people who are getting divorced, things like that. That one scene, that one monologue, yeah. what was that? It's in the third scene of the play. It's a character describing something that happened to them over the weekend when they wandered into the woods and encountered a very strange woman who said something strange to him. And it's a very long monologue about that encounter. When you've got the monologue, you don't really have a character at that point. So do you suddenly go, well, all right, where is this taking place and who's around him? Is that the, the first question that came up? Whenever I'm writing something like that, I do feel like I have a character because the voice to me is so clear. So it feels actually like a very, the character feels very clear to me. The way that they speak feels clear. Yeah, I think I start with character really. And I almost have the experience that they're, I'm hearing them and I'm just trying to write down what I'm hearing. Do you have any image of, say, an actor playing the character? Sometimes, but I try not to get too attached to specific actors because you often don't get them. Occasionally, I have written with a few people in mind, but I find it's better to leave it a little more open than that. I think it allows you to see things about the character you wouldn't necessarily have seen. So you have these characters and you have this backstory of what's going on. Somewhere along the line, you need to have a through story that from the beginning to the end. How does that emerge? With this play, it's strange because the play travels up the floors of the office building. So it starts in the basement and ends on the top floor. And some characters are only in one scene and some characters reappear. And I think the play works because of an accumulation, but some characters get really longer arcs than others. Some arcs have to be accomplished within one scene. So that's something I worked really hard to do. And that's why I think they're, I think I'm on draft 11 now, uh, since the first draft of rewritten and rewritten and rewritten to try to make all of those arcs feel satisfying. It's almost like a bunch of short stories. It almost is, but somehow they have to link together and make a whole piece that feels satisfying. If you've read all of Kitteridge, it works sort of yeah. similarly like that. Um, the setting is almost a character in itself, and then there are these short little scenes, but they add up to be this wonderful novel. So that was sort of what I was going for with this structure. You're listening to an interview with Rachel Bonds, whose play Swimmers is now at Marin Theatre Company, runs through March 27th. I'm Richard Walensky on Arts Waves. When you say it's not satisfying and you're going through another draft, what does not satisfying mean to you then? To me, it means each of the characters has a an arc that makes sense, that they've each changed in some way, and that the place that we started from, from the first scene, feels very different than what happens by the last scene, and it feels like there has been a journey. So that's for... How many characters? Eleven. Do you move characters from one floor to another? Yes, we, we did that. In fact, the director, Mike, and I worked over this past year to develop the play further, and we moved scenes around a lot just to see what would 
make the most satisfying shape for the play. So things that are now the penultimate scene used to be scene five, and we've moved them around to make a structure that seems the best. That also means, I guess, removing things that might seem either not obvious enough or too obvious. Yes, and things that were superfluous. Or what often happens is, and with this, it's it's a comedy, so there were a lot of small joke moments that created a kind of texture in a scene but ended up being not useful. So I had to cut those mercilessly. It's hard to do. You know, it's comedy, so that means that you're also aiming for humor. Is it just like the same kind of instinctive humor that, say, a David Sedaris would deal with? <laughs> this humor comes from the characters. So all of the comedy, I think, is driven by the idiosyncrasies of the characters and the strange context that they've been put in. I don't, with the exception of one scene, I was not actively writing jokes. There is one character who's a very lonely guy, and his default thing is to make a lot of jokes about himself at his own expense. So that required some more serious joke writing. But for the rest of the play, it's more about strange idiosyncrasies from the characters that creates the comedy. Mike Donahue worked with you on the Wolf Twins drama, right? It was, although definitely had some comedic elements to it. Had you worked with him before then? That was our first production. Uh, we only met, it's not even been two years but we immediately liked each other very much. And when we worked on the Wolf Twins, it was very clear to both of us that we needed to continue to work together. You sent him swimmers. Was that before or after Marin got involved? After. And when he came in, did he immediately say this, 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 and this? <laughs> About the play? No. We knew that we wanted to continue to develop it before we went into rehearsal, so we both felt like we were learning more about the play. We had a series of table readings in New York. We did three of them where we got together with a bunch of actors, read through the play, and then Mike and I would stay after and talk about how it was working, how the structure could be better. Then I went home and rewrote. Then about you know a month, two months later, we came back with 11 actors, read through it again. So he and I learned about the play together. Was there any fear that you'd send it off to Jason and he'd go, no, no, no? No, because he has been so accommodating from the beginning oh. and believed in me and believed in the, the play. Now, at this point, you're in Marin and you have the actors. Now, you said you brought in some of your own actors? Yeah, we brought four from New York, only one of which I've worked with before. Mike has worked with two of them before. The first time that you're sitting there, I guess, at a table read, and you have people reading your words and putting their own spin on them, which may or may not be a spin you like, what is that feeling like for you? It's a mixture. It's usually very gratifying, sometimes very moving. This happens to me during tech a lot too, and you suddenly realize that everyone in the room is there to work on your thing. It's very moving. It can be very frustrating. Sometimes actors want to, you know, make a meal of things that shouldn't be made a meal of, which I understand. But most of the time, I think the people we choose to bring in are very, very generous. And it's very gratifying to hear them read my words. Occasionally, will you say, no, read it this way? Occasionally in rehearsal, I will turn to Mike and whisper, it should be this. And then I have him somehow deliver that note in a 
diplomatic way, but I never give a line reading to an actor unless they ask for it. If they ask, what, what is your intention with this? Can you, can you just tell me? I will, but I, I don't unless they solicit that. When that all happens, I mean, is that a time when you begin to think about whether a joke is hitting or do you have to wait till later? With the comedy, I think we're going to be waiting until the audience is there. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there are things I just innately know will work. Oftentimes, Mike and I talk about just switching an order of two words. I think comedy is so much about economy. My husband and I talk about this a lot, but if you can do something in fewer words, it's often funnier. Sometimes Mike and I will realize that just the phrasing of something needs to be moved, and that makes the joke work. What about times in other plays, like even Wolf Twins, where you write a line which is serious and it gets a laugh? It's tricky. Sometimes that undermines the play, and we have to figure out what to do to make that not happen, because it it's actually needs to be a serious moment in order for people to understand the events of the play, in which case I turn to myself and say, okay, something that I've done here is causing a problem. I need to rework it. But then there are things that just hit the audience in a way you didn't expect, and fine. You know, it's good. Rachel Bonds, where does the themes come in, or is it something you just try to ignore? I think it's innately in the thing that I write, and then I don't start to think about it until I have a complete draft. And then I see, oh, I see what this play's about. But sometimes it takes me along until we're in a workshop setting until I realize, oh, this play is about this. Okay, now what can I do to make that clearer? But I usually don't think about it until later. And that's the same with subtext. Subtext, I think about a lot. That, I think, is one of the main components of my plays. So that's something I think about early on. It's just so much part of the way I write dialogue. It's a lot about what's going on underneath. So that's something that comes earlier. Is there a political edge to your plays? I think the political is coming from the personal. For me, I don't actively set out to write something political or to really tackle an issue. But for instance, in this play, there is a character who is sexually harassed and files a complaint against the boss. And it's a very ambiguous event. But there's a lot in this play about being a woman in an office. And that's not something that I set out to do like, oh, I'm going to write about feminism. But I think it comes out in through the personal stories of the characters. What's going on if it's the end of the world outside <laughs> the office? You know, we're currently living in a very bizarre political Fine. situation. Yes. I mean, well, you start in 2011. It was a slightly different situation. Sure. But as things have evolved, does that, in your mind, change the play a little? I think it does. I think it does a lot. Uh, the character who has the monologue about going into the woods, he's very convinced that the world is completely whacked out and we need to do something before it all just explodes. And I, that feels true to me right now with what's going on with the election, with gun laws, terrorism, all these things. Trump, right. there's so much fear right now in the world. There's, I have a lot of fear about what's happening. And that I think that is really making the play... I, it's hitting my ear in a different way because that's what I'm thinking about. Uh, well, I know a lot of authors try to put that out of their minds, but a play is different in that you sort of need to be more conscious of subtext. Absolutely. And there was 
a joke made in the first version of this play about a song that was relevant in 2011. No longer relevant. I had to take it out because it didn't make any sense anymore. And I could have updated to change the song, but it just, I was like, you know what, this needs to just go. It doesn't make sense. And yeah, things hit your ear differently just because of the way the what's happening in the world today. So I think I have to be very aware of that and and either lean into it or, or trim it out if it's not helping the play. But what, what you said is interesting because it also means that you have to be very careful about references to events or people yes. that's going to change over time. Absolutely. Anything with pop culture or, or politics, any of those references, I have to be really careful about. You know, you want the play to have a sense of timelessness. So I do have to be careful about those references. How do you know a play is finished? If I can sit through the production and feel that none of the writing is bugging me, then it feels finished to me. I write and do so much by ear. It's about how it sort of hits me, how it sounds, the rhythm of it. And if I can sit through something and all of it really hits my ear in the right way, I feel done with it. I've spoken with artistic directors who say that however wonderful a first world premiere is, you never really get a sense of what the play could be because second time or even third time out when you have a different director and it's in a different place, then you can really see what you're dealing with. You think that's true? I think so. I've only had one second production. We did the premiere of my play, Five Mile Lake at South Coast Rep. And then I just saw it happen again at McCarter this spring. Totally different production, different designers, different director, different actors. It was a wonderful experience just to see how the play changed in a different space. The theater difference was amazing. Did you work on it at all? I did. I was in rehearsal quite a bit. I, just because I enjoyed being there. And Emily Mann was directing, who is a bit of a hero of mine, so I wanted to be around uh, while she was directing. And I changed a little bit of the writing, so I wanted to be in rehearsal for that. Who are your uh, playwrights that you would look up to, uh, or more than that, even emulate? Chekhov, Annie Baker, Will Eno is one of my favorites, big favorites, Melissa James Gibson, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, Oh, gosh. There's so many. You mentioned some of these names. I know Annie Baker, you know, Chekhov, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But these other names I don't know. There's a lot of plays being produced and a lot of good playwrights, but most of us haven't heard of them. I mean, I hear about them because I'm in the world of New York and and, uh, that's my community. It's a small, contained world that not a lot of people... I go to see a movie and I don't often pay attention to who the screenwriter is. You know, you think about who are the actors and who's the director. And I think that's true. Unless you're very specifically in the world of new plays, you may not be paying attention to who the playwright is. When you get plays produced by places like Manhattan Theater Company, that's getting pretty close to, I guess, whether we like it or not, still the the idea of Broadway. Mm -hmm. Does that idea of Broadway... How does that sit for a playwright as opposed to, say, the idea of a wide release would sit for an indie director? It still has that shiny, 
glamour about it. I think a lot of us still feel sort of starry-eyed about Broadway, but at the same time, a lot of my plays are not necessarily commercial enough to do well on Broadway. Maybe. Maybe they would. Most of the plays being done on Broadway are written by men these days. I think only two last year were written by women. The statistics are pretty staggering. There's something a little bit starry-eyed about being on Broadway, but I also feel disappointed in a lot of the work they do. I feel more excited about being produced off-Broadway in some of the theaters I really respect. But that means still New York. It does. You mentioned a moment ago that very few women are being produced. Has this uh, affected you personally? I mean, who knows? I'm still right. having some productions, but I perhaps I could have more if I were male. I have no idea. But uh, all I know about is that the statistics are pretty sad. Rachel Bonds, have you thought about writing screenplays? I have, and I am interested in film. Uh, I just need to buckle down and try it. I've, my heart has been in the theater, and that's what I've been focusing on. Um, so I haven't spent enough time writing a screenplay, although I would like to. And there are a couple of my plays I'd be interested in adapting for the screen. So that's something I've been thinking about. Do you ever think about writing a sequel to any of your plays? <laughs> I haven't. Uh, a lot of my friends who I writer friends who I love are, you know, are working on these big play cycles. They're, they're a trilogy or, or maybe there's a cycle of five plays. And that's something that is interesting to me, but is not naturally come about from any of my current plays. But I, I think it could happen. Title swimmers, where do you get your titles? Some of them appear right away. Some of them take a long time. Five Mile Lake, for instance, I think I had 10 different titles before that one settled. Sometimes the title comes first. Yeah, this one came pretty early. I am very fond of the John Cheever story, The Swimmer. So that partly influenced some of the themes of the play. And um, I also love to swim. <laughs> that was part of it. And then there, there is a scene in this play about about swimming and how that feels like um, a return to something essential. All of these characters are sort of swimming through their lives right now. They're all they're all a little confused and are a little bit lost. And there's the sense that they're pushing through water. Rachel Bonds, now Swimmers, is here at Marin. What's the next production? The next project I'm doing is the reading of my South Coast Rep Commission called Curve of Departure, which Mike Donahue is directing in April at South Coast Rep. So we're doing that reading. And then coming up soon-ish, not necessarily next season, perhaps season after, is the commission I had from Ars Nova and Manhattan Theater Club, which um, is now going to be done at Ars Nova, uh, but we don't know when yet. But that's a that's a play with music, music written by a band called the Banksons, who actually did a show here at Z Space last year, I believe. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm -hmm.